right. Hey, guys, what's up? Welcome. Welcome to Salt Company. How are we doing? Good? Are we ready to embark on this relationship series? I feel, I feel all right about it. It's going to be a good time. Uh, guys, if we haven't met yet, my name is Drake. I'm on staff here. Uh, excited you guys are joining us. It is February, which means love is in the air, trying to mask the aroma of Greeley just a little bit. Uh, and it's why, if you've been with us for uh, this semester, we've been traveling, journeying through the book of Philippians. Uh, but for the next three weeks, we're going to be uh, taking, pressing a pause on Philippians and going to be looking at this relationship series. And I'll just say this from the jump, uh, is that uh, this series is really shaped uh, by a lot of pastors and authors that encouraged me in my own dumpster fire of relationships while I was in college. And so uh, guys like uh, Matt Chandler, uh, J.D. Greer, Tim Keller, um, J.T. Uh, English, Ben Stewart, um, just a ton of guys that have really helped shape this series. And so this is going to be a dumpster fire. Uh, this is not going to be a dumpster fire. This will be, uh, <laughs> hopefully not, hopefully not. My relationships were a dumpster fire. Uh, this will hopefully just be uh, a waterfall of information for you guys. That'll be really helpful. Um, but I know that even as we jump into the series on relationships, uh, there are some people in here tonight who are really excited about this topic. Okay, you hear ring by spring and you're like, yes, Lord, please, Lord, let it be, right? Some of you girls, you've been so excited about the idea of marriage that you came to college on a mission, right, to find a guy, to get your MRS degree, aka your Mrs. degree, and to fill the Pinterest board of all of your expectations. Some of you dudes, it's been a few Summer Olympics since a girl has even looked in your direction, but man, you're pumped. You're excited. Like, this is the year for you. This is, this is the year of the relationship for you guys. Uh, I also know there's, there's some of you um, who are thinking, man, like, not another relationship series. This is going to suck. Why did I come tonight? You know, especially for you dudes, you're like, man, even the thought of a wedding or a mar marriage makes me want to, like, emotionally and physically vomit. Like, I'm trying to be a bachelor to the rapture, dude. Like, that's why I'm here. You know, like, this is not, this is not for me. Um, others of you, you know, you girls, um, maybe, maybe some of you girls, you've never seen a healthy relationship modeled uh, for you, and maybe you've gotten hurt in relationships over and over again, so you've sort of been uh, disenchanted to this idea of marriage, I know stepping into this room, heading into this relationship series, there are people all over the spectrum in regards to singleness, dating, and marriage. But the reality is, man, is that our culture is dominated by love. Our culture is completely dominated by love. Like 20 to 30 years ago, movie writers knew this about us, right? And so they started um, writing these movies, and they knew that we loved romantic tragedies, okay? Not being a part of them, but watching them. And so they started uh, writing all these movies. We saw movies like uh, Romeo and Juliet actually come to the screen. We saw the Titanic. We saw the Notebook, like some absolute classics. Uh, and not long after, Hollywood elites said, man, it seems like people love this idea of love. Like people love love. And also they love to laugh. And so why don't we just, in this brilliant idea, combine these two things, this idea of to love love and to love laughter in this thing known as a romantic comedy. Do we have any rom-com fans in here? Yes, yes, me too, okay? Which says a lot about me probably. But man, every single rom-com movie I have probably watched, right? Like Hitch, The Proposal, Sleepless in Seattle, There's Something About Mary, Fifty First Dates, How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days. 
basically any movie where Matthew McConaughey has his shirt off, okay? That was happened. That happened in the early 2000s, which was good. <laughs> but even recently, you know, instead of romantic tragedies or rom-coms, we have TV shows like The Bachelor and Love is Blind that has literally turned love into a game, and we are confused, okay? We're so confused. The dating culture for you guys right now is a confusing place to be in. Can I get an amen on that? Yes, there we go. But in our world dominated by love, here's what's true, and the stats are going to back this up, is that most people in this room want to be married, okay? Like if we had everyone just raise their hands of people who desire marriage, don't raise your hand. I see, like, it's okay, relax. We're going to get there, you know? Uh, but if we did have everyone raise their hands, most of this room would have their hands raised. And that tracks with the stats. About 92% of people all across the world want to be married or at least open to the idea of marriage in their lifetime. And not just that, but most people in the room will be married. Uh, in fact, if you just look at the trends, there's a good chance that most people in this room are going to be married in about 10 years or less. Okay, some of you, that's like, that's the best news I've heard this semester, you know? Some of you guys are like, so you're saying there's a chance for me, okay? Yes, 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 there is. Because here's the reality. If you lower your standards, you could go on a date tomorrow, right? If you lower your standards enough, you could get married tomorrow, right? You could get married tonight, man. I'm ordained. We can make this happen right here. Just come talk to me after. But if that's true, like if, mo if most people desire marriage and most people will be married... That I just want you to think, like, don't, don't you envision a good marriage? Like, like, I've never heard of a girl getting together with her gal pals. I don't know if that's what you call each other. Um, but I've never heard of a girl getting together with her group, her posse, and, and saying, like, man, I can't wait to get married, like, and just fight with my husband all the time. Like, that's going to be so incredible. Just so looking forward to that. Like, no, no guy is getting together with his bros. They don't talk anyways, but if they did, they... <laughs> They, they wouldn't be like, man, I'm so excited for the next 70 years of just being miserable with my wife. You know, nobody is entering into a relationship, into a marriage with that mindset. And yet you see it all over the world, uh, different marriages all over the world, that people's dreams for marriage and people's reality for their marriage are going in totally different directions. That the best stats that we have right now are that 40 to 50 percent of marriages in America end in divorce. And that's crazy that in a world of people who will be married and who want to be married, we're actually getting worse at this marriage thing. And so with social media telling you this is what marriage is like and with movie and TV shows saying this is what marriage will be like and Tinder and other apps saying maybe this is how you get on a day to marriage, tonight I want to go back to the Bible. I want to go back to the one who invented marriage. I want to go back to see what God says about marriage, because listen to this, it's his idea. Marriage is his idea. And so before we talk about who to date, before we talk about dating and the pursuit and everything else, I want to look at the end goal of marriage. Like before we get on this journey, we need to know what the end destination is. And so if you guys have your Bibles, turn with me to Genesis chapter two. First book of the Bible, second page of the Bible. Genesis chapter two. In it, we see the origination of marriage, and I love it because it shows us how passionate about marriage God is, like how marriage is the overflow of his creativity, and it shows us how pro-marriage God really is, that on the second page of the Bible, out of anything that he could talk about, he wants to zoom in on a picture of marriage. 
And so Genesis 2, that's where you should be. What I want to do is unpack the point and the purpose of marriage. And then what I want to do is take that really high-level view and bring it down to the ground and make some things really practical for us. But first, the point and the purpose of marriage, Genesis 2. We're still in the creation account. Eve has not yet been created. So Adam is in the garden alone. And Genesis 2.18 says this. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Okay, so we have to start here. God is looking at Adam alone in the garden in isolation, and he is saying it is not good that man should be alone. Now, we got we to start here, and we got to get some background on this statement because this is actually really important. You see, Genesis 1 is the account of God creating everything, the heavens and the earth and everything in it, and we see that the account is actually very poetic in nature, that God has a rhythm in Genesis 1 where he would create something, the land, the sea, the animals, where he would create something, and then he would step back, observe it, and say, it is good. That happened seven times in Genesis chapter 1, that God created, and it was good. God created, and it was good. God created, and it was good. And as Genesis 1 turns into Genesis 2, it goes from the six-day creation account, and then it zooms in on the day that God created man in Genesis 2. That as the pinnacle of his creation, we actually see Genesis 2 zoom in on the pinnacle of his creation, mankind, to give us more information. And so in the midst of the creation account, we see something really significant once we get to this verse in, chapter, in verse 18, because this is the first time in the Bible that we see that something is not good, where God looks down at Adam in the garden and says, it is not good that man should be alone, that God as a relational being, eternally existing in three persons, designed humans to be relational beings. And we see that just a chapter before in verse 26, where he says, let us, aka God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, let us make man in our image. And so that at the core of who God is, is deep, meaningful relationships. And so in this moment, in the garden, Adam is incapable of reflecting the beauty of God because he can't reflect the relational nature of God. And so let's go back to verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So God decides to make Adam a helper. Now, that word in Hebrew, which is the original language of the Old Testament, that word helper in Hebrew is used 19 different times in the Old Testament. 16 of those times, it is in reference to God. And so that word helper, that's actually not a demeaning word. It is giving incredible value to women. If anything, it's demeaning to men because God's looking down and he's like, that dude's going to need some help, right? And so watch what happens. We're passionate about that. Watch what happens. God says, okay, Adam, you're going to need some help. I'm going to make you a helper fit for you. But then something interesting happens in the transition. God actually parades all of these animals in front of Adam, like the lions, tigers, bears, oh my. And in it, we're supposed to feel Adam's loneliness. Uh, one commentator mentioned how it was like Adam was looking out at all of these animals and he was realizing that he was the only one that didn't have a partner. But this is where it starts to get really good because this is where Eve enters into the picture. Verse 21. 
So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made, that's an important word, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. So that word made there has this idea that God built. God built Eve. He was detailed that with everything else in creation, the moon, the stars, the mountains, the oceans, everything else in all of creation that makes us stop in our tracks because of its beauty, God simply spoke into existence. But with woman, he built, he fashioned, he used his hands. That means that literally nothing else in all of creation got more of God's attention and creative energy than the woman and the relationship between men and women, nothing that God made women in a unique and creative way. And we see that reality in 1 Peter. 1 Peter calls women a fellow heir in the grace of life, that women are equal in value but different. Men and women are different, and yet they're different in a way that's made to fit together, physically, obviously, but also emotionally and spiritually. Like, think about it. God had some options here. Like, he could have made just more animals for Adam. He could have made a clone of Adam. He could have let Adam grow out with a bunch of other Adams. But he doesn't do that. He makes a woman with a heart, with a body, with a soul, with a mind that fits perfectly with man physically, emotionally, and spiritually. And we see that in verse 23. Genesis 2, 23. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And so Adam wakes up from his nap, boom, naked woman in front of him that he's married to. Now, guys, this isn't going to be a reality for you today, okay? You're actually going to have to talk to a woman, okay? Like actually verbally ask them out, engage with them in conversations, and not be awkward for an extended period of time before this would ever be a reality for you. But here in the first marriage, God brought woman to man. He's like the ultimate wingman, and Adam is loving it, okay? Verses 23 and 24, it's actually poetry, like Adam is writing poetry. That's how you know you're in love, you know? And he's writing poetry. He's like, I am Ish, she is Isha. I am man, she is, whoa, man, you know? <laughs> but Adam realizes something really beautiful here. He is saying about Eve, you were made of me and from me and for me. And I want you to notice something. Verse 24, it says, therefore, Many translations, it says, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And so God, he is interjecting into this story and he's trying to communicate a timeless truth. He's telling us something that wasn't just for Adam and Eve, but also for us today. Because think about it, Adam and Eve, they were the first humans. They didn't have a father and mother to leave. And so he's pushing past Adam and Eve to us today. And he's saying, this is why a person... This is why we leave our father and mother in order to unite to one person, that the two become one flesh. Like, think about Eve here. She doesn't have any other options. What if she isn't compatible with Adam? I don't know, man. 
Like, but if she swipes left, there's nobody left. But these two become one, and it's meant to show us something really significant. That marriage, it isn't just designed by God, it's meant to display more about God. It isn't just designed by God, it's meant to display more about God. That this unity of diversity, male and female, is meant to be a testimony to the world about God. That when a man and a woman come together, it's showing people the nature of how Jesus Christ, the Son of God, wants to come together with his people, the church. And that's what's so powerful about marriage, because you come together with another person and you get to enjoy them and be with them. And your little story gets to paint a picture of a bigger story, that your marriage has a mission, that when you're married, anytime you selflessly serve your spouse, it is showing the selflessness of Jesus, that he would come down from heaven, that he would walk among us and that he would willingly go to the cross to redeem you and me back to him. That when marriage gets difficult, because it will. When the honeymoon feelings start to get over, because they will. And it feels like it would be easier to run. But you choose to stay, to fight for your covenant, to choose to love and be faithful. You're pointing to the faithfulness of Jesus, who has promised us that he will never leave us nor forsake us. And when everything is going incredible, when the money is rolling in, when it feels like you're clicking with the other person, when laughter is abundant, when the sex is great, when the laughter of the baby is music to your ears, you get to thank God like James did when he says every good and perfect gift is from above. And so let me be clear about something, is that your marriage doesn't exist first and foremost for your happiness. Your marriage isn't primarily about companionship or a soulmate. A marriage isn't just for guiltless sex. Like marriage ultimately exists to go past you and point to the beauty of Jesus Christ and put it on display for the world. And this might be the most transformative thing you guys hear because this is not a popular idea in culture. But even just think about a wedding ceremony. Like marriage starts where you're looking at each other, right? Like that, that, that's where you guys start. You're looking at each other face to face, but it doesn't end right here. Like for the rest of your life, you're not just like, I love you, babe. Yeah, I love you too. Yeah, you're so good. I love our love. Like our love is so awesome. Like this is so great. Let's just talk for the rest of our life just looking at each other. No, right? Like eventually the officiant will say, as you're looking at each other, holding hands, crying, putting the ring on each other's fingers. And what does he do? He turns you both to face the world together. And the last thing that he does is he turns you facing the world together. And he says, I am pleased to present to you for the very first time, Mr. and Mrs. Drake Daniels. And everyone cheers, your mom's crying, but then you lock hands with your spouse and you walk into the world together. The marriage, it isn't just a momentary event on a singular day, but it is a missional vision for your life. That your love isn't supposed to stay locked up just between you guys forever, but it is meant to be a light expressed to the world of what Christ has done in your heart. That's why marriage exists. But here's the issue, and I hear it all the time from people, is what do they say? Is they say that our marriage, our lives, just went in totally different directions. And look, I want you to see that that, that is not a value statement. That is a vision statement. And what are they saying? Well, I was a plumber, and she was a librarian, so I don't really hang out too much. No, it's not about career. It is about overarching vision for your life. It's about your mission. What is your life about? 
What are your priorities? What is most important to you? And so if you're single, which most of you are, you don't just marry someone because they are cute, nice, funny, smart, hot, whatever. You marry someone who's going in the same direction, who has the same mission as you. Because without an anchor in your life, without both of you being tethered to something greater, you will each float in different directions. And so if you want a healthy, fun, and good marriage, you're gonna have to know your mission. And that's what Genesis 2 teaches us. That marriage, it was designed by God to display more about God. So with the rest of our time together, I just wanna highlight a few practical ideas for you to have a marriage that survives and thrives no matter what happens. Some of these will be quick, some longer, but stick with me. There's five different points, five different practical applications for you. And number one is this, is that we must get our relationship with God right before we will ever get a relationship with a guy or a girl right. Like even if you just look at your Bibles and start to navigate it, you see the first marriage in Genesis 2, uh, in the Song of Solomon, which... Uh, by the way, was a book talking about the pursuit of a man and a woman and sex that was so explicit that the Hebrew men could not read it unless they were married or they had turned 30. That's for free. But you have Paul. You also have Paul talking about singleness in 1 Corinthians. You have this picture of a portrait of marriage in Ephesians. And yet, if you add all of those up in your Bible that's talking explicitly about marriage in this way, it makes up a tiny fraction of your Bible. Why? Because the Bible is much more concerned about a different relationship. It's much more concerned about your relationship between you and God, that before you have any other relationship, you need to have a relationship, a thriving one with God, that before you would enter into marriage, you need to be completely satisfied with your maker. Over and over again in the Bible, it presents a reality that when you are connected to God, the ultimate source of life, you can be a source of life to others. But when you are disconnected from God as a source of life, all you can do is start to suck life away from people. And let me tell you, in Genesis 3, when mankind started to disconnect from the source of life, when mankind said, God, I don't, I don't want anything to do with you. I don't want to have to do with you or your purposes or your kingdom. I want me, myself, and I. I want my pleasures and my kingdom. When that happened, the world began to unravel. You read the next pages in Genesis. Violence and sexual exploitation started to run rampant. Where the next two men that we see in the Bible, one kills the other. Where the next two girls that we see in the Bible, both were being exploited by the same man. Because he said, I know that God said that marriage is between one man and one woman and the two become one flesh, but I don't care. I want to use both of you for my own thoughts. I want to use both of you. I don't care about your emotions. I just want me. I want it for me. And we see in Genesis what we see now in the world today, that when we break faith with God, we break faith with others and everything around us starts to break. That, we aren't, that when we aren't connected to the source of life, we can't give life to others. We can only take life from them. And let me tell you, when you start a relationship there, where you aren't pursuing after God, where Christ does not reign and rule in your heart, you're going to move towards someone else and say, you must meet all of my needs because functionally you are my savior. You are my redeemer. You're the one who's going to deliver me. And it doesn't work because they weren't meant to do that. They weren't. 
They weren't meant to. But when you have your relationship with God right first, man, it takes the desperation out of dating. Because then you don't have to look for another person to fill the deepest vacancies in your heart because you're connected to the one who ultimately made your heart. And so ladies, you want a guy like that. You don't want a guy that's going to look to you and look at you like you complete me. It may sound romantic and cute at the beginning, but I'll tell you what, when a guy starts talking about a girl and to a girl like she is my source, she is my life, she is my everything, that's scary because the girls weren't meant to do that and you will crumble under those expectations. And so girls, also, don't look to a guy to fill every vacant part of your soul. He can't do it. Have you ever met a guy? Just watch one for a while. You know, go to Holmes Dining Hall and, and just watch one for like 30 minutes. And you'll be like, man, I don't know why I thought that could fix this. But ladies, you get a guy who says, I, I don't know if God has marriage in the picture for me, but all I know is that I was lost, I was hopeless, I was broken, but God saved me and he loved me and he freed me from sin, and so I'm his. And you have a guy like that who's on Jesus's team and chasing after Jesus's kingdom, and let me tell you, that guy is going to love you at your best and your worst because it honors his king to do so. And guys, you want a girl like that, that she's chasing after Jesus, so if she comes alongside of you in a relationship, she's gonna honor you in sickness and in health when you meet her expectations and when you fall desperately short. Like, that's the person that you want, not just the person that's pursuing you, but you want a person that's pursuing Christ, because when they are pursuing Christ, they're going to pursue you in the way that you are meant to be pursued. Girls, don't settle. My gosh, it's not in my notes, but please, don't settle. There's a lot of neat Christian boys, not a lot of godly men. Number two, marriage has a mission. Marriage has a mission. I've already started to explain this earlier. That marriage exists to go beyond you to put the beauty of Christ on display. And so rather than going more in depth on that, I just want to pose this idea. The flirt to convert strategy, the missional dating, dating someone who isn't a Christian to potentially marry someone who isn't a Christian. Here's what's going to happen. Is that if Jesus is your greatest ambition in life and you marry a non-Christian, instead of the world being your mission field, your spouse is going to be your mission field. Instead of praying for the world, for your neighbors, for your coworkers to come to faith, you're going to be spending the rest of your life praying that your spouse will come to faith. And so instead of praying with your spouse, you're going to be praying for your spouse. And let me tell you, that's a totally different reality. And so that's why God's heart is always, it always has been for God's people to marry God's people. That outside of following Jesus, there are going to be very few decisions in your life that have as much impact on who you turn out to be and who your kids turn out to be other than who you marry. And I've seen it so many times, man, it is so much easier. And I say this with so much grace. It is so much easier for someone not following Jesus to pull you down to them and then for you to pull someone else into a relationship with Jesus. It is. And so here's what I want you to consider is that it's really difficult to be married to someone when they don't share the same ultimate purpose as you do. And maybe even the more difficult thing is that if you marry someone who isn't following Jesus, who doesn't love Jesus, who doesn't realize what Jesus has done in your own heart, it might reveal that Jesus is in fact not ultimate in your life either. 
and mind. And I don't want that for you. A marriage on mission going in the same direction is going to be a marriage that is fully alive. Number three. Number three, avoid the marriage ditches. So here's what we saw in Genesis 2 with marriage is that God designed it. It wasn't an accident that was created through different generations of societies. No, but God designed it. And if God designed it, if God designed marriage, then he gets to define marriage. And so how does God define it? In his scripture, one man, one woman, covenant for life. But because of sin, our world, our culture has distorted marriage in two primary ways, two primary ditches that our culture tends to fall into. And the first ditch is this, is that we have a very low view of marriage, that marriage is whatever. Like, why get married? Seems like a pretty silly idea. Just live together. Try before you buy it. Like, a piece of paper can't define our love. Or because we have such a low view of marriage, we've distorted it. That marriage is whatever you want it to be, right? And so marry someone of the same sex. Go for it. Marry multiple people. Do it. Some countries are legally allowing you to marry objects. That's where it's going. But here's my point, is that when you take God out of marriage, when you take the author out of it, when you want the designer gone, there is no marriage at all. That when you can start defining it however you want, you've lost it. You've lost it. And so as Christians, man, we stand up. And this is really difficult for me to say. Like, I know that, I know that different people around the world would be canceled just because of something like this. But here's the deal, guys. I believe in the Bible, and I believe in the God of the Bible. And so as Christians, we want to stand on what God's truth would have for us. That's one man, one woman, and we see that it's permanent. It's permanent. It's a covenant, not meant to be transient, but meant to be fixed. Not something you throw away, but something you fight for and you hold on to. It's a permanent covenant. I've heard it said like this, that fire escapes, great for a building, terrible for a marriage. That when you say yes on an altar, you aren't just saying yes to a wedding or a honeymoon, but you're saying yes to a marriage. The exhilarating highs and the very painful lows, because hear me on this, and this is so different from what we heard in all the movies growing up, is that staying married is not about staying in love. It's about being steadfast in a promise that the love doesn't hold up the commitment. The commitment in the covenant of marriage actually holds up the love. One woman, one man, permanent covenant. And so that's one ditch where we fall into a low view of marriage. Marriage is whatever you want it to be. But the other ditch that we can fall into, one that might even be more prominent, especially among college students, is that we have too high of a view of marriage. And here's what I mean by that, is that we come into marriage, we come into relationships thinking that marriage completes you. It is the end goal. It is what satisfies you completely. It arises everything dormant in your heart and in your life. If you can just find a soulmate, to find the one. But this ditch, too high of a view of marriage, really is this thought that a temporary person can satisfy your heart that was made for eternity. That's why Augustine said that our souls are restless until we find our rest in thee. Because our hearts were made for something much greater, not a temporary thing like another person, but ultimately an eternal thing in the person of Jesus. That's what our hearts were made for. And so here's the truth about marriage, is that, guys, I love marriage. <laughs> like, it is such a gift. Like, some of you really need to hear that today. 
that marriage is good. Like for those of you who have never seen it model well, who may be fearful to enter into one of those types of relationships, I want you to know that it is really, really good. And for those of you who can't wait to be married, for those of you who have trouble focusing on today because we're thinking about the future of tomorrow of marriage, I want you to know that it is really, really hard. It's really hard. Both of those things are true. It's really good and really hard because a great and awesome and healthy marriage is not just stumbled upon, it's forged. They have to work for it. And so I don't want any of us to have too low of a view of marriage or too high of a view. I want us to have a biblical view, a biblical view of marriage that will save your marriage before your marriage even begins. And number four is this. You may have heard something similar to this, but it's so true. Number four is this. Concern yourself with becoming the right person to marry over finding the right person to marry. Concern yourself with becoming the right person to marry over finding the right person to marry. You see, the Bible is going to say very, very little, basically nothing on how to find a good spouse, but it will teach you a ton about becoming the right type of person and spouse. And so hear me on this. Guys, if you become the right type of person, you're going to start to attract the right type of person. Because I don't know if you guys realize this, but time is not on the same page as external beauty. It's not. Gravity has always won, okay? And so when you're 40, when you're 50, when you're 60 and beyond, you're going to need a lot more than just good looks between you and your spouse. That the further you get into marriage, you're going to need your character to facilitate the attraction more and more between you and your spouse. And so I'll say this from personal experience of having uh, a baby with my wife, um, Hopefully, yes, yes. Baby with my wife, that's the correct way to phrase it. I wasn't sure what I was saying there. Um, we have an eight-month-old son at home, and I'll tell you this, is it will not matter how hot your spouse is at 2 a.m. when you're cleaning up your baby's puke after getting an hour and a half of sleep. It won't matter how hot they are, okay? I promise you, it will not matter. And so what you want to do, like, I'm so thankful. Like, the, more, the longer I've been married, the more I'm thankful that I have a wife who isn't just externally beautiful, but internally. And so my challenge for you guys today, for this week, for this month and beyond, when you are looking for a spouse, is to find someone who would make a great 2 a.m. spouse. Find someone who would make a great 2 a.m. spouse. Look beyond the external features and look at their heart. 1 Samuel 16, that God doesn't look at the outward appearance like man does, but he looks at the heart. Could you imagine what type of relationship you would have if you adopted that posture? I promise you, marriage and divorce, like divorce rates would absolutely plummet if that would happen. Because you're looking past the external and you're looking at their heart. Find someone who makes a great 2 a.m. spouse. That's what you want for the long haul. So concern yourself more with who you are before you concern yourself with who you find. The last one, as we close up, number five, today is the best day to follow Jesus. Today is the best day to follow Jesus. We've talked a lot about marriage tonight, and man, it is a great gift. But if you take anything away from tonight, I want you to know and hear this, is that today is the best day to follow Jesus. Like marriage is unbelievable, but it is just a shadow and so the best thing that you guys can do for your future marriage is to follow Jesus faithfully today. Like as awesome as marriage is, Jesus is better. 
For as incredible as the wedding and the honeymoon might be, Jesus is even greater. For as awesome and fun as the wedding ceremony is, the ultimate wedding between Jesus and his church far surpasses it. That marriage is not ultimate, but Jesus is. That's what I want you to hear more than anything else. Because Jesus, guys, Jesus is ultimately the one who left his father, who left the throne room in heaven to come to us, who would suffer for us, who would go to the cross for us so that he could unite himself and his bride together forever. You see, the relationship series, it would be a total miss. Guys, if you found a spouse, but you missed your savior, it'd be a total miss. I remember being a junior in college, completely and utterly depressed because of some things that were going on in my life, relationships that were ended, and I walked in to a place much like this, and I heard a relationship series, and I came into that room hoping to find some tips about how to find a spouse, how to find the one, and I'll tell you what, because of a relationship series five, six years ago, whatever it was, I left being completely in love with Jesus. And that was the best thing that has ever happened to me. My wife is second, but she's a distant second to what Jesus has done in my own heart and in my own life. Because marriage is not ultimate, but Jesus is. And so don't miss, don't miss the Savior trying to find a spouse. Don't do it, because Jesus is better. Let me pray for us. Lord, I'm thankful that your word would still continue to speak to us 2,000 years after it was written. Lord, I'm thankful that you do care a lot about marriage, that on the second page of the Bible, you wanted to speak into it because it's important. And I don't know how people came in to the room tonight, but I do know this, is that every single person in here is looking to belong, and to matter. And Lord, you're the only one who can ultimately give both of those things. That we can belong to you and that we do matter to you. That we're not the point, but we are important to you. And so Lord, would you help us to have a really unbelievable view of marriage. To not think too highly of it, not think that it's gonna save us, not think that another person will be our savior, our redeemer, because, Lord, 2,000 years ago on a cross, on a hill on Calvary, you proved that you were the only one worthy of all of our worship, that you're the only one worthy to pursue in that type of way. But, Lord, I'm thankful for marriage and how it's a picture, ultimately, of you reconciling yourself with your bride, the church. Lord, would we have a healthy view? Would we see how good marriage is would we desire it? Would we want it? Would this room be filled one day with a bunch of really healthy marriages that would not just impact this room, but would impact generations upon generations upon generations because one marriage can shine bright for a generation to see? Lord, would this room would this room have just like such an understanding of what marriage is supposed to be like that we can be such a light on this campus 
in a world that's def- desperately looking for love and hope and joy. Would you help us be the people who show that you're the ultimate one? Lord, do it. Do it in this room. Allow us to see you for how beautiful you are. Would we not miss out on the beautiful, saving work of a Savior? Would we not miss it? Lord, you're good, and we love you so much. Would you use this time? In your name we pray. Amen.